please open them up to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 1, verses 9 to 13 is the text that we're in. Mark chapter 1, verses 9 to 13. And for those of you who would like to know next week, I think we're in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 20. It's 14 to 20. So if you want this week just to spend some time reading and meditating on what we're going to be preaching on next week, that is the text. But for this morning, we're going to be in verses 19, verse 9 to uh, 13. If you haven't brought your Bibles with you this morning, I'd encourage you to do so next week. But we do have it on the screen behind me. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. It says the following. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals. And the animals were ministering to him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it's living and active. We thank you that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And we pray this morning that, Holy Spirit, you would come and you would open up our eyes to the wonders of God's law, his word, that you would point us to Christ, that we would leave this morning marveling at the, this wonderful Jesus that we have as a God, as a Savior, as a friend, and that we would just be able to be a people who delight more and more in who you are, we ask. We ask this in Jesus' name. And the people of God said, Amen. Amen. The Gospel of Mark is a quick-paced book. Uh, we got to see a bit of that last week. Um, we see in our five little verses that we have this morning jam-packed with so many things. Mark is not the type of guy that is fluffy and adds a bunch of extra information in for the sake of it, but rather he is very brief. He gets to the point and he moves on from the point. It seems that Mark is more interested in movement than he is in narrative, and, and so we see he is incredibly brief. For example, last week we got introduced to the man named John. In verse 4, in verse 7, John is pointing away from himself to Jesus, and verse 9, Jesus arrives. So John is kind of already, in some ways, moving out of the picture as our focus turns to Jesus. And, and for us, there's a great uh, example for, that we have in John, that one of our main purposes as Christians, one of the main privileges that we have, is that we get to point away from ourselves, but rather to the person Jesus. That the purpose behind our lives is not so much that we would talk a lot about ourselves, as interesting that might be, often only to us, not the people listening to it. It's not, a, it's not even the main purpose is to talk about uh, significant theological con uh, concepts, as, as significant as they might be, but rather the main purpose that we have is to point people to the wonderful Jesus that we know, so that they may know him, love him, trust him, and follow him. And so this week I had the privilege of uh, heading off to Cape Town. I had to go and do a visa application over there um, for conferences here. Um, and I caught an Uber for the very first time. Uh, the parts of me were incredibly nervous about that. I've never done it. don't like trying new things. I'm just not that kind of guy. Um, I order the same food at a restaurant all the time. 
Um, and uh, so I caught an Uber, and it was nerve-wracking to know what to do. And I, I got into the car, sat next to my driver. His name was Simpiwe. And as this happens, you, you were chatting as we were talking. And what normally happens as a pastor, someone will ask what you do, and you will tell them you're a pastor, and that goes one of two ways. They either chat a lot about church, or we stop talking altogether. Um, and I said, no, I'm a pastor. And interestingly enough, he brought up the conversation of what about these different types of churches that all just want your money? And he got to share a really bad experience um, that he had about a church that he had been to, and it made me angry on one side and depressed on the other. And through this conversation, trying to bring the true gospel in, not the gospel that he had heard. And it, through all this conversation, eventually I had to turn to him and say, Simpiwe, who is Jesus to you? Who do you say Christ is? Because there are many truths out there in this world, but ultimately there is only one real truth. I can go outside and say the sky is green, but actually it's blue. No matter how much I believe it's green, it really is blue. And where we find our truth is in Scripture. Jesus says in John 17, 17, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. So if we want to know where truth is, it is found here in the very word of God. And the word of God says, friend, that we are lost in our sin. That we have all fallen short of God's standard. Not the standard of men, but God's standard. We have fallen short. And that that means we deserve a punishment that we cannot save ourselves from. But God, in his deep love for you and me, sends a person named Jesus. And Jesus would come to live the life that you and I could not live and die upon a cross and take your and my sin, all the things that we have done wrong upon him. And he would bear the wrath of God, our punishment of death for us. So that if we would just believe, not through our own effort, but just faith in Christ that we are saved. And I said, Simpiwe, you know, there's a story of Jesus when he's walking with his disciples and he says to them, who do people say I am? And maybe say, he's a prophet, he's a good man, he's he's Elijah, he's John the Baptist. But he turns to them and says, yeah, but who do you say I am? And it doesn't matter who your grandmother says he is. It doesn't matter what your grandfather said about him. It doesn't even matter what I say. At the end of the day, you have to determine who do you say he is. Because friends, the ultimate example that we have here of John is, is, is pointing away from himself to Jesus. And our lives is about pointing people to this wonderful Jesus that we have come to get to know. And so here in this gospel, we find a shifting away from John, um, this person John, straight on to this person of Jesus Christ. And we see in our text this morning, in these five verses, two major significant events take place. We see Jesus' baptism, we see Jesus in the water, and we see Jesus in the wilderness. Um, And uh, those are my two points for you, Jesus in the water and Jesus in the wilderness. Um, So when we come to Jesus' baptism, I think uh, this is an epic event. It's the overture of his ministry, if you will. Um, And for many of us, I think what happens is when it comes to the baptism of Jesus, we kind of don't notice the scandalous nature of it because we're so familiar about it. But what was John the Baptist's baptism? It was a baptism of repentance. But Jesus wasn't sinful. Jesus was perfect. He didn't need to repent. He didn't need forgiveness. So what is taking place here? In short, what is happening here is Jesus is identifying with the need of those he came to save. Jesus is identifying with the need of those who came to save. You see, when you and I are baptized, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ and we are baptized, when the baptism happens, we identify with Christ in his death and his resurrection. 
It's symbolic of what's taking place within our hearts. That when we go under the water, it is us identifying and being united with Christ in his death. That's us going down into the grave with him. And when we get pulled out, it is us being united with Christ in his resurrection, in his life. But before we could identify with Jesus in his baptism, he identified with sinners in his baptism. We see this in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. Paul makes this incredible statement. He says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so the whole of Jesus' life, all his ministry, Jesus is constantly being tied to the fact that he is the sin bearer. He's the one who bears our sins. He, he in his sin bearing, identifies with the need at our need at every point along the path of his ministry, if you will. And so as he identifies with us as his sinners in the water, also this baptism points to the kind of death that he is going to have and how he will come and save us from our sin himself. Jesus will say when he's nearing the cross, as he's about to get to it in, in Luke chapter 12, verse 50, he uses this phraseology. He says, I have a baptism to undergo. And he's referring to the fact that he will die and be plunged into death, if you will. And as he gets plunged into death, those of us who believed in him will get plunged into it as well, and so that we might be covered by his blood. Are you tracking with me this morning? I've got half of you in the room. I think that's good. But it's a foreshadowing of how he's going to die and deal with our sins. Maybe this will help. I don't know if it will, but maybe it will. So uh, um, Sinclair Ferguson uses this wonderful sentence. Um, to describe what Jesus is doing here. He says, when Jesus is here in the water, he already indicates how he will become our savior. By standing in the river in those in whose waters penitent Jews had symbolically washed away their sins and allowing that water polluted by those sins to be poured over his perfect being. It's incredible. It's a symbolic, as, as the Jews would go into the water to be baptized for repentance, now this perfect Jesus will go into the water and be covered with their sins. So that those of us who would believe in Jesus would be covered by his baptism of his blood. And that that blood would wash us clean. In Ephesians 1 verse 17 it says, In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And verse 8 says, which he has lavished upon us. It's glorious. What can wash away my sins, says that old hymn. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so in the water here, we see Jesus identifying with us as sinners. But not only that, it also in the water, we get to see the very identity of Jesus. Look at verses 10. It says this. It says, And when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like uh, a dove. And this is another surprising aspect of what's happened here in, in Mark's gospel. Mark uses a word, a term here, a word called torn, to describe the heavens being opened. In, in, in Matthew and in Luke, he, they just use the word open. But here he uses the word torn. It's, it's this ripping, this tearing open. And he does so because he's trying to show us that there's a fulfillment of a prophecy that is taking place. It's a prophecy from a prayer that happened in Isaiah 64 verse 1. It says this, Oh, that you would rend or you would tear 
the heavens and come down. So as I say, Lord, that you would just open up the heavens and that you would come down to us. And, and, and Mark is saying, well, this prayer has been fulfilled. He's trying to show us that heaven is coming down to us. So often, you and I use the phraseology when things are going really crazy around us. We say, uh, you know, all hell has broken loose. Often I describe that as when I walk into my children's room and I see the mess. It seems like all hell has broken loose inside here. But, but what Mark is trying to say is heaven has broken loose. That heaven has broken loose. That heaven has come to us. And he uses this term torn twice. Like, track with me here. This is so great. He uses these, this term torn twice. He uses it at the beginning of the gospel to describe the heavens being open and, and, and the Holy Spirit coming down. And he uses again the word torn at the end of his gospel in Mark 15 verse 38. It's after Jesus has died upon the cross and he describes how the temple curtain has been torn in two. The temple curtain was important because it, it kept out, uh, it, it kept a divide between the rest of the temple and that of the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies is where God dwelt. His, his full tangible presence was there. And only once a year could one man, the high priest, go into the Holy of Holies to atone for the sins of Israel. But this curtain that kept and divided everybody else from the presence of God after the death of Jesus is torn in two, showing and symbolizing that now we can go into the presence of God, that God's presence is available to all in Christ Jesus. And so what's great about this is that at the beginning of God, Mark's gospel, what we see is the heavens being torn and God's presence pursuing us. But now because of Jesus' death, we have the curtain being torn so that those of us who are in Jesus can pursue God. Isn't that awesome? That we can go after him. That we can pursue him and know him and delight in him. It's this incredible thing that takes place here. And also in Mark chapter 10, it goes, to, goes on to say, And the Spirit was descending on him like a dove. Now, in Jewish minds, in a Jewish mind, there'd be a bunch of bells ringing. Because this was a term that was used and, and a, a way to describe uh, many great men and women in the Old Testament. Many kings and prophets and, and priests were spoken about how they had the Holy Spirit come upon them. If they did something significant in the Old Testament, so often this is how they were described. An example of this would be in 1 Samuel 16 and 13. And it says, then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And so David will then go as a result of that, empowered by the spirit to do significant things for the glory of God. And so here, when people are expecting the Messiah to arrive. If he's going to come in, in a kingly rule and subdue all his enemies under his feet, if he's going to come in a prophetic way and come and uh, uh, get people right and deal with their ignorance, if he's going to do, come in his priestly role and, and be able to bear the alienation of all of those whom he came to save, then surely this Messiah who was to come also would have experienced such a thing? That he too would experience the Spirit coming upon him? And so when the Jews hear this, and when this happens, they go, oh, oh, there's something wonderful that's going to happen. This is what our forefathers spoke about. There's something significant taking place here. This Jesus is the one whom we've been told is to come. I know Mark says these things briefly, but it's, it's unpacking such rich stuff for us. And in Mark chapter 11, it says this as well. 
And we see, we see here, it says, And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. There are two things here that the Father says about Jesus. He says, You are my beloved son. That's one. And the other, you are well pleased. And in doing so, the Father is, is using here some messianic prophecies that have happened in the past. So when he talks about, you're my beloved son, he says, he's referring to Psalm 2, this messianic psalm where it says, Psalm 2 verse 7, he says, I, tell, uh, I will tell of a decree and the Lord said to me, you are my son. You hear that? You got it? You see that? And then again in Isaiah 41 verse 2, he says, behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I'm well pleased. I have put my spirit on him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. And so here we see the Father is able to identify Jesus as both the, the king of, of Psalm 2, his son in Psalm 2, but also the suffering servant of Isaiah 42, who will later become the one in Isaiah 53 who bears the sins of the world. So we, he comes and identifies Jesus as God himself as the one who's come, the Messiah who's come to save us of our sins. And so what we have here is we have a testimony of the Father saying that Jesus is his son. So far in the Gospel of Mark, we've seen Mark's testimony saying Jesus is the son of God. We've had the prophet's testimony saying Jesus is the son of God. We've had John's testimony saying Jesus is the son of God. And the crescendo of it all, the climax of it all, is the Father himself saying, this is my son. And in this testimony, he says, it's him who I delight. And friends, I think that's so important for us this morning is to realize that this Jesus that we follow is someone whom we get to come along and delight in as well. He is our very delight. There is nothing else in this world that can satisfy you like Jesus. Nothing compares to him. And in him we find a fullness of of delight. So that's enough of that. Enough of Jesus in the water. Let's move to Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus in the wilderness. Let's look at verses 12 and 13. It says this. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, what's happening here? It seems a, a bit odd, right? Suddenly, you're in the water, being baptized, being told, listen, you are my son in whom I'm well pleased. And it says immediately the Spirit drove him out. It seems like he got out the water and walked straight into the wilderness to be tempted, uh, by, uh, tempted by Satan. And what Mark is doing out here is, is he's going to clarify what is going to happen throughout the rest of the gospel. Namely, what he's going to do in terms of healing and casting out demons, healing um, those who are, have leprosy, raising of a paralytic man, and so on. Mark is pointing out behind all the earthly scenes that happen in Galilee, behind what happens in Jesus' life and his resurrection and, and his death and resurrection, is that all of these things are ultimately represented as a supernatural conflict that is taking place. That behind the men who have unbelief in Jesus, 
behind those who will rebel against him, behind the animosity towards him, underlies all the fact there's a supernatural conflict taking place. And it's unending at this point in the gospel. This conflict is, it takes place from Genesis chapter 14 and 15. Adam and Eve have just disobeyed God. And God comes to the serpent, the deceiver, and he says this, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And in a sense, the entire Old Testament is an outworking of what we discover here in Genesis 3 verse 15. That there is this conflict between the seed of the woman and the serpent. And that rushes from the Old Testament into the New Testament. And into the Gospel of Mark where we see conflicts take place. And then again we see this conflict still takes place in church history and in our time today. And so tomorrow we will get up and we will turn on the news or open the newspaper however you might be. And you will read it and you will ask yourself, what in the world is going on? And behind all of this, there is a conflict, a spiritual conflict that is taking place. And, 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 and it has been addressed here with Christ's encounter with Satan in the wilderness. In, in Genesis chapter 1, we see Adam, this wonderful, this man in this wonderful, lovely garden with a lovely life, a lovely wife. Lovely flowers, lovely food. He's got absolutely all, and he goes head to head with the evil one, and yet he fails. But in in, in 1 Corinthians 15, we discover that there's a second Adam. And, And this Adam goes up against, the first Adam goes up against the enemy, and he fails, but the second enemy goes up against Adam, not in a beautiful, luxurious garden with everything that he has, but rather he goes up to him in the deserts. Because the first Adam who went against the enemy in the garden failed and brought about a wilderness. So the second Adam will go against the enemy in the wilderness and he will defeat him and he will be triumphant and he will usher in a garden. This beautiful garden that will take place. And it doesn't just, doesn't, he doesn't just overcome the enemy here in the wilderness, but he will overcome the enemy properly um, on the cross. And he will defeat sin and shame. And he will win. So that all of us who who believe in Jesus Christ, who trust in him, will not have to no longer stay in this wilderness, but one day we'll be able to spend time in a garden. That this beautiful Jesus that we have that identifies himself with us in the water in our sins will go head to head with the enemy and become triumphant so that we who have faith in him, who are covered by his blood, who partake in his baptism, will be able to stand with him in this glorious, beautiful God. And he will make us a new creation. He will renew the heavens and the earth. We'll get glorified new bodies with him forever. It's wonderful, isn't it? This is a beautiful thing that is taking place here in the garden. And so, friends, to, tomorrow morning we get to wake up and we get to read about financial crises, 
about many wars that are taking place, uh, so many problems. But the real crisis isn't so much those things, but rather it's a personal crisis. That the large part of your and my crises in our lives aren't so much horizontal problems, but a vertical one first. And the call of us this morning is to come and delight and know and submit ourselves to this great, glorious God who hasn't come and and tried to save us from afar, but rather He's come to us. He's taken on human flesh, identified Himself with us so that we who are in this broken, fallen world who, who trust and believe in Him will no longer be left in the wilderness, but might be able to enter into this glorious garden of the one who's come to save us. And the call is to delight in him, enjoy him, trust him and know him. This is the wonderful Jesus that we serve. Let us pray. Lord, this morning, I'm so grateful that you are a God who doesn't just stand from afar, but that you have come and you've identified with us, died on the cross for us, and have brought us and given us this glorious salvation in Jesus. And I pray for us this morning, Lord, as we've heard all of these things, and it was a lot this morning, but as as we've heard all of it, I, I pray that you would stir in us this wonder of a God who loves us so. That, that we would delight in you, that we would rejoice in you, that we would proclaim you, that we would find life in you. And Lord, knowing that there is nothing in this world that compares. And I pray for, for us this morning too, Lord, knowing that this is not the end. You are the God who is a light. You have been victorious. You are triumphant. Darkness cannot overcome you, but rather you have overcome darkness. And through the work that you have done, not what we have done, what you have done, we get to know you and enjoy you in one day will be the new heavens and the earth, this glorious garden, we pray. And so open up our eyes, Lord, to this Jesus. Stir in us affections. Forgive us that we are so quick to lose our awe of who you are. And I pray, Lord, that you would settle this in within our hearts in Jesus' name. And the people of God said, Amen.